The scripture reading for this evening is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33. Jeremiah, chapter 33. Now you will find in Jeremiah 33, beginning to read at verse 19, a reference to God's covenant that he made with day and with night. Now that almost certainly is the covenant that God established in creation when he set the sun, the moon, and stars in their courses. And they, since that time, have been going according to God's covenant order. And out of that context, he talks about the covenant that he made with David and the covenant that he made with the Levites. We need to understand the perspective of that covenant that we are to have also. It's not just with David and his descendants according to the flesh. It is all of us who claim the heritage of David and who have him ruling over us, that is, through great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about the covenant that God made with the Levites, we must not think just about a Levitical priesthood in an Old Testament fashion, but we must remember that the Levitical priesthood has reached its fulfillment and consummation in the priesthood of Melchizedek in which Christ joined together these two priesthoods, the priesthood of Levi and the priesthood of Melchizedek, and he forever abides as a priest on our behalf. Let us hear then this portion of the word of God beginning to read in Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David my servant and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken and David no longer will have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. May God bless to our hearts the reading and hearing of this portion of his holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. Our subject for this evening is the covenant of creation. The covenant of creation. Let us pray. We come, O Heavenly Father, and ask that you will give us wisdom that we may understand the order of the world in which we live. Help us not to be as the fool who says in his heart there is no God with respect to this or that. But let us understand that there is a God with respect to everything in creation. Grant to us joy in understanding our place and our role in the great world that you have made 
and the great purposes for redemption which you have established. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now we're beginning this evening with a trail along the lazy V. If you can imagine in your minds what we started with last week in terms of the unfolding of the purposes of God over history, we're starting at the very beginning point. If you turn a V over on its side, you have a lazy V, and we're starting right at the point of that V to see how God's purposes in the history of the world began to be established. Now, some have said there is no such thing as a covenant of creation. There is no bond of life and death that God established in the creational order. Now, it is true in the first two chapters of Genesis, which record the creation of the world, you do not have a specific reference to covenant. You do not have the usage of the word covenant. But other places in the Bible do refer subsequently to a bond that was established with creation at the beginning of the world. We read already from Jeremiah of that covenant, and it's called a covenant, that God established with day and night, almost certainly referring to the creational order that he made. Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 says, They, that is Israel, like mankind, have broken the covenant. Now that verse seems to indicate that Adam, as he was originally created, was in a covenantal bond with God. Even as Adam, even as Israel had broken the covenant, so Adam also broke the covenant. Now it's not the most important thing in the world that we're able to label the original creational order of things as covenantal, but it does help. It gives us an order of structure for the whole of the purposes of God in the history of the world. And the testimony of Scripture does seem to support that principle. Even if the word is not there, we know that the concept of covenant is there in that from the beginning you have the major elements of a covenant. You have a bond between God and creation. You have a bond established particularly between God and man. God, you remember, walked with Adam in the garden, in the cool of the evening. And that is the very essence of covenant. God with us. That is what a covenant is all about. And there is the essence of the covenant when God is moving with Adam in the garden, having that close personal fellowship with Adam in the coolness of the garden. It was a covenant. It was furthermore a bond of life and death. You remember the words that God said to Adam? In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The implication was that if he did not eat, he would live. But if he ate, he would die. Now there was no immediate shedding of blood at the time of the creation of the world to bind God and man in that relationship, but the word was enough. It was a bond of life and death. And that fact has an impact upon every man that has lived since that time. Because all men are in the covenant of creation. They are in that bond of life and death that was sovereignly administered. You know that Adam didn't sit down at the bargain table with God and say, God, I'll do this for you. I'll go pull a full few weeds in your garden if you'll do this for me, if you'll let me eat of all of these trees. No, God said, this is what you shall do. This is how it's going to be. So it was a bond of life and death that was sovereignly administered. And that's a covenant. 
We have later testimony from Scripture that the word appropriately belongs there, but even more significantly, all the elements that make for a covenant were present in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, when we talk about the covenant of creation, there are two major aspects of that covenant that may be considered. Two major aspects. A general aspect of the covenant of creation and a focal aspect of the covenant of creation. Now, it's very important to notice both of these aspects of the covenant of creation because if you begin with a wrong concept of the covenant of creation, you will end with a wrong concept of the covenant of redemption. If you begin thinking of creation very narrowly as it relates to the religious dimension of man, then you will end very narrowly as it relates to the redemption of man. You see, you've got to start with the right perspective. Now, very often you get the idea that Adam was sitting on a little bit of green grass on the side of a hill with a daisy that he had picked and he was plucking the leaves and he was saying, I shall eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I shall eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And often it is thought that that's essentially all that Adam did. When you think about man in the original creational relationship, that's what you focus upon, and that's appropriate as a focal aspect of the covenant of creation. And Lord willing, we will look next week at the focal dimension, that test of the tree of the knowledge and good of e- and, ev- and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, this, and see something of the significance of, of that particular test that was set before man in the covenant of creation. But that's not all. That's not all that was involved in the covenant of creation. There were many larger dimensions. And these larger dimensions are what may be called the creational ordinances. The creational ordinances. Now what were those creational ordinances? Well, we can speak of three major ordinances, that is, orders that were built right into the very structures of creation. Creational ordinances. What were they? There are three that are prominent. The first is the Sabbath. The first creational ordinance is the Sabbath. The second is marriage. And the third is labor. The Sabbath, marriage, and labor. These are the creational ordinances that God has established. And it is very important to see from the beginning that man, as he was in the creational relationship with God, didn't just have to decide whether or not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had also responsibilities with respect to worship as it related to the Sabbath. He had responsibilities with respect to the marriage relationship. And he had responsibilities also with respect to labor. Now you see, if you have a start with a very narrow concept of the creational covenant, you're going to end with a very narrow concept of the redemptive covenant. And you're going to think, if I can just get them baptized, then everything will be okay. If I can just get them baptized into Christianity, then they're saved and everything's all right. But if you understand that there are great, massive, other realms 
which also must experience the redemptive activity of God, even as they were involved in the creative activity of God, then you can see that Christianity is not just one little piece of your life, that Christianity is to be the whole of your life. All of your life is religion. There's no division between the secular and the sacred on the most basic level. Everything is sacred. You should see your work. You should see your marriage. You should see your worship responsibilities, the ordering of your life as a part of your religious expression. Now we're going to begin this evening by looking at that first of those creational ordinances, the Sabbath. The first of those creational ordinances, which is the Sabbath. Now, notice, if you will turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that God blessed the Sabbath day. God blessed the Sabbath day. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now what happened here? God made this day holy. God set one day and seven apart from the other days and sanctified that day. Now, God didn't bless the Sabbath day for his own sake. God blessed the Sabbath day for his creation's sake. And particularly, he blessed it for man's sake. Now notice, this is long before Moses came around. It's long before the establishing of the Ten Commandments. You know, it's sometimes argued that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament and one is left out, and therefore we obligated only to nine of the ten. Well, as a matter of fact, I believe ten of the ten are repeated by the New Testament, certainly an example in the New Testament experience. But more particularly, notice here that the origins of the Sabbath are in the creational order of things. It's like a part of the law of gravity. It's built into the very ordering and structuring of the creation of the world. Now you can see from the New Testament that same emphasis in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Now you find many controversies about the Sabbath in the New Testament. Jesus seemed always to be in controversy with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. But in that controversy, you must not misread it. You must not think that, Sa that Jesus is rejecting the Sabbath principle. As a matter of fact, he establishes the Sabbath, not only by his teaching, but also by his resurrection on the first day of the week and what he expects of his people as a consequence of that. But notice, as he, one of those, at the end of one of those Sabbath controversies, what Jesus says. Then he said to them in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath came into being, literally, is the phrase. The Sabbath came into being for man. God created the Sabbath. He goes all the way back to the creational ordering of things. And he says, God created the Sabbath for the sake of man. So the Sabbath is not something that you can live with or live without any more than you can live with or live without the force of gravity. 
It's built into the very structural orderings of creation. Now, God blessed this Sabbath. What is the, the blessing? What is the blessing that we get out of the Sabbath? Well, one thing we get is deliverance from the tyranny of work. Deliverance from the tyranny of work. God does not expect and God does not want man to be tyrannized by his work. God wants man to enjoy the labor that he does and he wants him to have a time when he may enjoy the labor of his hands. Now the job market is a little better today than it might have been a, a year or two ago. At least I think so. I don't keep up with those things too well. But that seems to be the case. But still, sometimes it's, it's pretty difficult to find a job. Now, suppose you were going around for a job interview here and there, and you came to one fellow, and he said, Well, I can give you a job. The, the pay is not too high. We, we'll give you a, a working wage. But one thing I should tell you, we, we do give seven and a half weeks a year paid vacation. Seven and a half weeks? That's where you start here? That's right. You start here with seven and a half weeks paid vacation. It's a pretty good deal. Well, that's what God gives you. Seven and a half weeks paid vacation. He says, you work every six, or six days and I'll give you the seventh free of charge. I'll provide for all you need. All you have to do is work for six days and I'll give you the seventh. I'll give you seven and a half weeks paid vacation every year beginning right now. All you have to do is believe it. All you have to do is exercise the faith that that's the way it's going to work out. Now that says a word to you as students. We have a few students here. You lay aside your work, your studies on the Lord's day. You lay aside those things in the faith. Now that doesn't mean you lay them aside on Friday and Saturday as well and expect it to all be done on Monday morning. It may mean you have to get up a little early Monday morning sometimes. But you perform an act of faith. You lay aside your regular work, whatever it may be, on the Sabbath day. Now, we do know that they are works of necessity. We know that they are works of mercy. There are some things that must be done. The cow has got to be milked on the Sabbath day. Some of you who are not farmers don't know that, but you do. You've got to milk the cow on the Sabbath day. And there are other kinds of things that must be done on the Sabbath day. There are works of necessity, and there are works of mercy that must be done. But the guiding rule and principle is lay aside those labors and let one day in seven be God's. God wants you to be blessed in the whole of your life by honoring the Sabbath day. Now, another blessing that comes from the Sabbath day is in the fact that God has ordered a pattern for his worship. God has ordered a pattern for his worship. When Genesis says that God sanctified this day, it means he made it holy for himself. It means he set this day apart to be his own. Look at Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. It's a beautiful picture of what we ought to aspire to on the Sabbath day. Isaiah chapter 58 verse 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And will, I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord 
has spoken. What a wonderful blessing. If you will turn aside your foot from doing your own pleasure, speaking your own words, thinking your own thoughts on this my holy day, I will bless you in ways that you cannot imagine. God has set aside this time for worship. Now, I don't need to say that to you. You're here on Sunday evening. But I hope you're here not only because you want to be, but partly also because you know you ought to be. That you shouldn't be afraid of the fact that there's some oughts that God has established. God has set aside the whole of this day to be his. And you should begin and end the day in the honoring of the Lord. Now, to get a full picture of the Sabbath day, we can't think narrowly just of one day in seven. We must get the full picture of the Sabbath, and that will help us to appreciate the significance of this creational order that he has established. The Sabbath has a variety of manifestations. And we might speak, first of all, of the cyclical or the, lit, or the, or the repetitive pattern of the Sabbath, and then we can speak also of the linear pattern of the Sabbath. How do these work out? Well, first of all, you have the weekly Sabbath. All through the generations, it has been present. Secondly, you have in the teaching of the Old Testament, according to Leviticus 25, you have the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, Israel was to leave its ground fallow, to leave its ground fallow and let whatever produce come forth. And the Lord promised he would provide for them. But not only did you have the sabbatical year, you had the jubilee year. You know what the jubilee year was? After seven sevens, that is the 50th year, that was to be a jubilee year. Now that was a year for glum bankers. It was a year for glum bankers. You know what? Because on the jubilee year, when the trumpet was sounded to begin that year, all debts were canceled. Amen. <laughs> that means no matter where you were in your mortgage payment, push, it was all gone. That car was yours, and you didn't have to make another payment on it. How people must have looked forward to the Jubilee year. It was a day of bonus in which God expressed the fact that he wanted them to be free from the burdensome character of life. There's a little town called Daphne, Alabama. It's right on the Mobile Bay, on the eastern side of the Mobile Bay. And every now and then, sometimes as many as three times during the summer, they have a strange phenomenon occur. They've sent Ge National Geographic people down to study this thing and try to explain what's happening down there. But somehow, for some reason, and you in this area can really appreciate this, all of the, the sea creatures come right into the shallows and just lie there as though they're kind of paralyzed. So you can go down with your nets and with your whatever and just scoop up crab and flounder and everything else. And whenever anyone sees this phenomenon beginning to occur, they run to the town street, through the town streets of Daphne and they ring the the bell and say, Jubilee, Jubilee, and everyone knows what that means, and they go rushing down to the seashore. Some have said it's been reported that as many as 600 flounder have been gathered by one person in one day during one of these Jubilees. Now, that'd be nice to have in your freezer, right? Wish we could get a little transmission of that message up this way. I'd be willing to fly down on a Jubilee day to Daphne, Alabama. Well, that's an image of what God wants life to be for you. 
not just a burdensome, heavy kind of thing, but a great, joyous feast of his bounty. And the Sabbath principle is built into the creation of the world for our good. Now, in that context, it's interesting to see how Jesus Christ began his public ministry. Look at Luke chapter 14, verses 8, excuse me, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Look at the new covenant realization of that great principle of the Jubilee. Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus quotes Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And you live in that context in which every day is the acceptable year of the Lord in which we can live in the jubilee of his acceptance and blessing. Now, those were the repetitive patterns, but you have also, interestingly, in the Bible, you have a linear pattern of the Sabbath. What does the fact that there is a linear pattern of the Sabbath tells us? It tells us that God is working in history on the pattern of the Sabbath. You can see that linear pattern of the Sabbath with respect to Israel's possession of the land of Canaan, the land of promise. They were moving toward a Sabbath rest. They were moving toward the rest that God had given them. That rest represented their redemption and deliverance from the bondage and oppression of Egypt. And when they first crossed into the land of promise, that land of rest, which is what the Sabbath is all about, what was the first thing they did after they had performed certain religious ceremonies? Well, they started a little parade, a little celebration. And they marched around the wall city of Jericho. How many days did they march around Jericho? Seven days. How many times did they march around the, day, the, the city on the seventh day? Seven times. Does that sound sabbatical? And then what did they do? The priest blew the trumpet, and that was the, the way that the jubilee was announced. The walls fell down, and what you have is repossession. Israel claimed that property that they had been denied for all that time. Now, what does that tell you? The scripture is telling you that the Sabbath is a, is a picture, a beautiful picture of redemption, of moving toward the possession of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not only the possession of Canaan, the captivity of Israel was according to the Jubilee or according to the sabbatical year. Why was Israel 70 years? In captivity? Well, Second Chronicles chapter 36 tells you. Second Chronicles chapter 36 verse 21 says that Israel was 70 years in captivity to fulfill its Sabbaths. Here's something historical. Even as the nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians are marching across the face of the earth, God is honoring the Sabbath. God is ordering things according to the Sabbath principle. And you've heard of Daniel's 70 weeks, haven't you? The 70 weeks of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Read Daniel 9, 24 when you get home, and there you will find that the future, 
The future expectation from a prophetic perspective is built on the Sabbath principle. All of history is patterned by God, not just the weeks, but the months and the years and the ages and the eons are built right into the history of the world. Now, from that perspective, you turn to Hebrews 3 and 4, and what do you read? You read that there remains still a Sabbath for the people of God, that Joshua did not give the people rest in the ultimate sense, so there still remains a rest for the people of God. And that's why, incidentally, you ought to be very hesitant about casting off the Sabbath. You ought to be very slow about rejecting the concept of the Sabbath. It's not just a little weekly pattern that you're dealing with. Certainly it's not a legal burden that you're talking about. You're dealing with a pattern that was built into creation that expresses God's plan and purposes for redemption. And that brings us then to the final point, the Sabbath in the New Testament. The Sabbath in the New Testament. And to get a full understanding on the Sabbath in the New Testament, there's one other thing that needs to be noted, and that is the reasons given for the Sabbath according to the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. You're familiar with the first giving of the Ten Commandments. Why was Israel commanded to keep the Sabbath? For in for God created the earth in six days and rested the seventh day. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy because it is the second giving of the Ten Commandments. Now look at verse 12 of Deuteronomy 5. Here's the fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now look down at verse 15. Here's the reason. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Not only because of creation, but also because of redemption. God has ordered you to keep the Sabbath day. And that's why you should be very hesitant to cast off the Sabbath principle. As a matter of fact, when you see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see an event as significant as the creation of the world. You know how if you want to make a big point as a teacher, you say sometimes, now if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Well, let me make that big point. If you don't remember anything else about tonight, remember this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was an event as significant as the creation of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was an event as significant as the creation of the world. And therefore, you should not be surprised that there would be an alteration, a modification of the pattern that has ordered the world since creation. And what was that pattern? Well, it's interesting. The pattern of the Old Testament ordering was a looking forward to a rest to come. So you have work, 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 rest. That was the pattern of the Old Testament. The people were looking forward to the rest to come. Now what is your circumstance now that Christ is risen? Well, you have a different pattern. The rest has been 
brought here. You can enter into the rest of God right now by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what do you do? You begin the week by resting. You perform an act of faith by worshiping God first, expressing your confidence that you will get all the work done that you need to get done this week. Not all the work that you want to get done, but all the work that you need to get done, you will get done. If you come and in faith honor Christ so that you rest. And out of the confidence of that rest, then you work, 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 work. A wholly different pattern conforming to the redemption of Christ accomplished by his resurrection that is equally as significant as the creation of the world. And so in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, you find the apostles and the Christians gathered together breaking bread on the first day of the week and Paul preaching to them on the first day of the week. That's Acts 20 verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, you say, hear Paul saying to the Corinthians, on the first day of your week, let all your gatherings be brought together that there be no collections when I come. The worship act of making your offering was to be made on the first day of the week. And in John, the revelation of John, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, what do you read? John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, I know it's suggested that every day is holy to the Lord now, and we shouldn't make any distinction of days, but the Bible does. Jesus does. John does when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What's the Lord's day? Well, it's the day in which Jesus manifested his lordship, in which he was raised from the dead. And that's today. And that's the day that you come and honor him by making him first in your life. You set your pattern straight on this day you consecrate this day wholly to him. You come together with God's people. You receive the blessing of the truth of God and the fellowship among God's spirit. And out of that refreshing strength that comes to you there, then you can live by faith through the remainder of the week. Let us praise God for that ordinance of creation, that ordinance of redemption, the Sabbath day, a vital part of God's covenant. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have begun a good work in us, and we thank you that you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We ask that you will help each one of us to orient our lives this moment and this day and every other Sabbath day until Christ should come to the worship of the one true living God. Help us to see you in all your holiness and glory. And let us sense the holiness of this day. We thank you for the blessings that we have received as your people today. And we look forward, O oh Father, to the victory that we shall achieve even in the rough places of life that we shall face in the days to come during this week because we know Christ is with us. And we offer these prayers not just for ourselves, but for all your people scattered through all the earth, many being in much worse circumstances than we. O oh Lord, hear the prayers for the sake of your people, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let us stand for the benediction.
Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen.